So we're in part four of Circle Maker, Draw the Circle. Um, day 28 is the day we're on today in the book. So if you're reading the book and you've gotten a little bit behind, start on day 28, pick up there today. You can catch up later if you want, uh, but start on today so you're on kind of on topic with us in the week to come. And that way we're all kind of praying together and joining, going together on this journey. Today we're talking about thinking long and praying long. I'm going to butcher this name. On the Swedish island of V-I-S-I-N-G-S-O, Visingzo, 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 I'm going to say it like that. Swedish island of Visingzo, there's a mysterious forest of oak trees. Anyone know where that island is? Anyone know how to pronounce that? Good. All right. There's a mysterious forest of oak trees, and it's mysterious because oak trees aren't indigenous to the island, and its origin was unknown for more than a century. And then, in 1980, the Swedish Navy received a letter from the Forestry Department reporting that their requested ship lumber was ready. The Swedish Navy, in 1980, received a letter from the Forestry Department reporting that their requested ship lumber was ready. The Navy didn't even know that it had ordered any lumber. After a little historical research, it was discovered that in 1829, this is 1980, in 1829, the Swedish Parliament, recognizing that it takes oak trees 150 years to mature and anticipating a shortage of lumber at the turn of the 21st century, ordered that 20,000 oak trees be planted on Visingzo and protected for the Navy. So over a very long time, yeah, very, very, this is, this is called thinking long, thinking long. Tim Lee asked, do you draw your circle clockwise or counterclockwise? That's a good question. I think I draw it counterclockwise, actually. Counterclockwise? Counterclockwise, probably, if you're left-handed, you probably go clockwise. Henry, what way do you draw a circle? Clockwise or counterclockwise? Yeah. <laughs> this is thinking long. 150 years to, uh, for oak trees to mature and be ready for lumber to make ships in the Navy, and by that time they were no longer using lumber to make ships for the Navy. Does anyone here tend to overestimate how much you can accomplish in a day, a week, or even a year? Anyone overestimate? Yeah, um, I do. I do this all the time. I have big lists of things that I'd like to get done this year, and I start off every year this way with lots, lots of things. I've got a list on my whiteboard right now in my office. A lot of things I want to get done, and, and, I'm, and I'm working at trying to get some of those things done. One of my problems is finishing. I have a hard time finishing to completion. I, I, I get things to a point where they're, they're okay to live with, and then I just kind of lose energy and stop at that point. When you're just thinking about the things that you'd like to accomplish, it's easy to only think about the finished result and not think about all the steps it's going to take to complete a task, right? When, when you're thinking about getting something done, it's easy to just kind of look at the end result, the end goal, and say, oh, that, that's going to be easy to accomplish, and not think about the hundred or a thousand steps that are required to get that thing accomplished, when we overestimate how much we can accomplish, 
Some may even have a tendency to start or commit themselves, myself, to more projects than can be completed, creating a string of uncompleted tasks. I don't know anyone like that. Maybe you do. You do, because you know me, and that's one of my things. I have a string of uncompleted tasks around the house, and my wife is laughing. She's trying to keep herself under control, not laugh too loud. <coughs> yeah, I love you too. <coughs> so we, uh, this, is, this is the opposite of thinking long, right? This, and this is, I think, a, a how a lot of us tend to think. We, 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 don't, we don't think long, we don't plan long, we just kind of jump into things and hope we can get them done in a reasonable amount of time. But one thing I know is that the bigger the vision, the longer and the harder we're going to have to pray, and the longer we'll have to think and plan about it. The bigger the vision, the longer it takes, and the more prayer it takes. Timely says she has so many unfinished craft projects. And speaking of unfinished, I jumped right into the sermon without doing the meme roundup. So we're going to stop here for a second after having done the uh, introduction, and we'll come back to that. Getting ahead of myself. No, my sermon is not half finished. <laughs> Sorry. All right, so uh, my, mind, my mind is a little bit disjointed this morning. What's new? All right, so during the pandemic, scammers had to get a little more creative, you know. They had to get more creative with how they were going to take advantage of people. And, and it looks like that they've used their same creativity when it comes to being able to work through the winter storm as well. Somebody wrote this on the front door. We've been trying to reach you about your car's extended warranty. But don't worry, don't worry, they're, they're not really trying to scam you, they, they're really just wanting to help you. They're like the genies of our modern society. The genie asked, what's your first wish? Steve replied, I wish I was rich. The genie nodded and said, what's your second wish? Rich explained, exclaimed, I want lots of money. You need to be specific when you're asking for wishes from the genie. When, and then when you get that wish for lots of money, remember... The thing you want today might actually be outdated by tomorrow. My parents had a TV like this. I remember because I was the remote. From time to time, you might lock yourself out of the house. And if you don't have a spare key, if you happen to have a house like ours where one door doesn't even have a key, um, here's a little tip for getting yourself back in. If you've ever gotten locked out of your house, talk to your lock calmly because communication is key. Yeah. <laughs> this next one gets points for creativity. My wife and I are sitting on the couch watching TV and I hear a text. Realizing I left my phone in the kitchen, I get up, go to the kitchen and check it, and it's a text from my wife. Please bring the chips on your way back. <laughs> Now people are going to be taking their spouse's phones and leaving them in parts of the house where they forget things and purposefully texting them to remember. Kids often surprise us with their kindness. My four-year-old said he wanted to go bowling with his little sister when things opened back up. It was kind of cool to see him view her not just as a sister but as a friend. And Then he started asking questions about how far she could roll and if she was heavy enough to knock down pins. 
Kids also surprise us with their honesty. Two-year-old referred to her coat pockets as snack holes, and this is what I shall call them for, uh, forever call them. We all have one of these friends, right? One of these friends who seems to live on the edge of reason and common sense. When your friend's gas light comes on and they keep driving past gas stations, that's the face you make. They're also the most likely to be the friends who end up doing these kinds of calls. Hello, I just want to know if I'm covered when I hit any wildlife insurance agents. Of course, sir. What did you hit? Bob, a trout. Well, some other news that happened in the last couple of weeks. NASA landed another rover on Mars. I don't remember how, what number is this, like sixth or seventh or something like that, that they've landed on Mars now. Mars now. It's called Perseverance. This rover has the ability to drill. Oh, this rover has the ability to drill and take samples and also has a little inspector gadget type helicopter. It's actually pretty cool. Nice try, aliens. There is no secret underground base on Mars by Hugh Mann. Hugh Mann. Trying to, aliens are trying to uh, spread some misinformation. But this news has reinvigorated the dreams of a lot of kids to be astronauts. Son, I want to be an astronaut when I grow up. Me? You can be. It just takes lots of studying, though. Son, not if I become an astronaut pirate. Me? Son? Me? I can't think of why that's wrong, but, but don't, don't do that. So, all right, that's our meme roundup for this week. Sorry, I forgot. Now we've got to get back to where we were. Praying long, drawing the circle, thinking long, overestimating how much we can accomplish... And it takes a long time to grow an oak tree. Our text is from Daniel chapter 10 this morning. Daniel chapter 10, two verses, 12 through 13. These are the key verses. My mom says, hello, 6-8. Shauna draws counterclockwise. Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For the vision concerns a time yet to come. This is just before Daniel was going to receive the vision of the 70 weeks and all of the things that would happen to, uh, to Israelites, and, and the it turned out to be the 70 years, and some of the things are actually still waiting to be fulfilled. This was just before that happened. But this didn't happen until after Daniel had dedicated himself. First, at the beginning of chapter 10, we see that Daniel mourned for three weeks. During that time of mourning, he didn't eat any choice food, this is what is now referred to as the Daniel fast. He ate no choice food, he ate no meat, drank no wine, and he used no lotions until the three weeks were over. What the text is trying to ex explain is that he, he took any form of pleasure out of his life. So, see, he, he wasn't doing anything to, to give him, to give him a, a more enjoyable existence. 
Then on the 24th day of the month, so after those three weeks, after the three weeks of fasting and not eating food and wine and all that stuff, on the 24th day of the month is when he sees the angel. And it's interesting to note that Daniel was the only one who saw the angel. So even though Daniel and there were others around who could have seen this angel, Daniel was the only one who was able to see the angel. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to experience God in incredible ways. Oftentimes, I'll go to bed praying for God to speak to me in ways like he's never spoken to me before. I did that last night as I was going, trying to fall asleep. I didn't get a whole lot of sleep last night, as often happens on a Saturday night. But I went to bed praying, you know, God, I just you know, want to hear your voice. I want to hear you speaking to me in, in, in ways that I'm not used to, that are outside the norm, and that you would just make things clear to me, things clear to our, for our family, for our church. But I usually wake up the next day and go about business as usual. I, you know, I might go to bed praying, you know, hoping that God will, will hear my prayer and speak to me in a unique way the coming days. And then the next morning I just kind of wake up and, you know, go through the motions and do, do the normal things. But great revelation from God doesn't come without great dedication to God. Great revelation from God doesn't come without great dedication to God. The revelations that Daniel was, would experience, the revelations that, that we all have heard about, if you've been in church for very long, you've, you've probably heard people trying to unravel the mysteries of Daniel and the 70 weeks and all the things. And, and you can actually, actually those 70 weeks did become 70 years that, were, that led up to the time of Christ and that were all fulfilled uh, prophecies as a result, except for the last week. A lot of scholars argue the last week is yet to be fulfilled, so we're waiting on that. But Daniel didn't just pray when he wanted something from God or when he was having a bad day, which, if we're being honest, that's how a lot of us might approach our prayer life, right? We're having a bad day and we want God to intervene. God, God why don't you love me? Why don't you love me? Why is this, why is this bad day happening to me? Or, or, or when we really, really want something from God, we might be really dedicated for a time, but then after we get that thing, we, we kind of stop being so dedicated to prayer, but Daniel prayed every day. In fact, Daniel prayed three times a day every day. And Daniel continued to pray three times a day every day in Babylon after the king had given an edict that anyone who prays to another god should be executed. And Daniel kept praying with the window open, praying towards Jerusalem three times a day. This cost Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. Now, I don't know about you, but if you, if you found yourself, you know, given the order of going into the lion's den the night before you're going to the lion's den, you might be spending a lot of time in prayer about what's going to happen the next day as you're getting thrown into the lion's den. But Daniel didn't pray because he was being thrown into the lion's den. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den because he prayed. What's motivating our prayer? Are, are, we, are we only motivated in prayer because of our circumstances and, and primarily because of the circumstances we'd like to see God get us out of? Or, or are we motivated in prayer to, to, to be more dedicated to God, to hear more from God, to know more about God, to become more like Christ in the way we live our day-to-day -day lives? 
Well, this dedication to prayer didn't just keep Daniel from getting eaten by lions. The results of Daniel's prayer life are responsible for Daniel's ascendance in the kingdom. Daniel went from being a prisoner of war, someone who was abhorred by the people of the town, to becoming the prime minister. He, he ascended expeditiously, just like Joseph did a long time before that. Prayer for Daniel was, was, not just, was not just going to God and asking for God to give him things, but it was through prayer that Daniel became one of the wisest men who had the greatest understanding of how the world should operate. And he was able to use that wisdom to help the people of Israel while they're in captivity. But Daniel liked to pray in his room with the window open, praying towards Jerusalem. I'd like to ask... If you will, if, you have, if you're okay sharing some of your answers, what are some of your favorite places to pray? What are some of your favorite places to pray? Dave Jury says, drawing a circle clockwise or counterclockwise, I see that I hold the pencil differently for each. Okay, good observation. What are some of your favorite places to pray? I'll give some people at home a, a few seconds to answer. Anyone here in the room can share us one of your favorite places? Locations that you've been in that you enjoy praying, or or daily. Where do you like to pray daily? Your work desk. Good. In your car. She needs the car. Oh, she needs to pray while she's in. <laughs> the bathroom. Quiet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good. Rachel says, in the sunshine. Bree says, I love praying on a hike or in nature. Kathy says she likes praying on her desk, on walks, in her car when she's alone. My wife says... Uh, she had a prayer list on the shower wall for a long time. That's true. Kathy says, at the beach for an ideal time. Anyone else? Where do you like to pray? What are some of your favorite places to pray? You said a big soft rug in front of your bed? I thought you said sock at first. I thought you said you had a big sock. Like, that's a unique one. I've never heard anyone wanting to pray in a big sock. <laughs> Do you have one, Nash? Are you just raising your hand? <laughs> Dave Drury says he likes to pray on airplanes, any absurd heights, and in downtown Portland. Marilyn Patterson, I live in the country, and when uh, she, I commute to town, she likes to pray when I'm in my car. Redeeming the, my wife says, redeeming the time you, uh, you have to spend doing unpleasant things like laundry or sweeping. That's a really good one. I don't know if you're familiar with the book by Brother Lawrence. 
Uh, it's called Practicing the Presence of God. That's one of the things. It's an old book. Um, he was a monk. And one of the things he talked about is practicing the presence of God is not what you would think where you think where you just go off to a monastery and be, isolate yourself from, from any form of you know, reality. But he was talking about finding the presence of God while he was doing the dishes and while he was caring for uh, the grounds and that kind of a thing. So you can practice the presence of God in that way. Shauna says in her car, in the shower, Marilyn, when she's alone in her bedroom, my mom says that dad likes to pray in the barn. That's a good one. Some of my favorite places uh, to pray are actually right here in this room. Um, I like, I like, I kind of, I've always, ever since, uh, even before reading this book, always just kind of walked circles in the room uh, throughout the week. Haven't done that in a little while now, but I'll just pray and turn on some, some instrumental worship music and just kind of walk in circles and pray for our church, pray for you, pray for what God was doing for us uh, and how he wanted us to move. It's a, it's a great environment, that, you know, like for the 24 hours of prayer that we talked about. I love praying when I'm gardening or I'm doing woodworking projects, especially like sanding. You know, it's a really monotonous thing, takes a long time, but it's a really great time to pray. And I, I like Brie, I like, I like praying when I'm out in nature and I'm surrounded by things that only God made. There, there's something, something about being in God's creation and, and praying out there where God did the work of creation. That, that's helpful to me for prayer. Parachuting, yeah. I would be praying during that. I'd be praying, I'd be praying for my sanity in the plane on the way up to do that because why would anyone willfully jump out of a plane? I don't understand that. Rachel, Rachel says, over her sleeping children. That's a good one, too. Daniel's prophecies took 70 years to come to pass. Some still haven't happened yet. But some of the biggest things that God is going to do in our life will often take the longest. Some of the, some of the biggest things, and Daniel didn't experience these things that, that he was praying about and praying for. Some of the biggest things that God is going to do in our lives it will take the longest to come about. Praying circles around your biggest dreams or your biggest problems or, or, or the biggest relationships that you have in your life can often feel like a long, boring, and even pointless process. I know there are times when, when I'm praying for something that seems just so far off out in the future and it, and it seems like it's just not happening how I wish it was going to happen. I start to wonder if God is actually hearing me and I can wonder if God even cares. And sometimes the silence of, those, of God's response or lack of response is deafening. And no matter how many times we draw the circle around that problem and we're circling it and circling it and circling it and circling it, it just seems like nothing is happening. But something I'm learning is that during those seasons, while we pray and beg and plead for, for God to change our situation or a specific situation, I've learned that what God is doing during those times is he's changing us. He's changing me. He's shaping me and he's using this situation and oftentimes he's using the struggle in a situation to shape me and mold me and change me to be more like him and to, to use the adversity of the struggle to chip away at the parts of me that are still not yet like Christ and, and using the adversity like iron sharpens iron, like, like a file on an axe to get rid of the dull parts and sharpen me to be more like him. 
But what do we do in those moments when, when we feel like God is never going to come through? Well, the author of the book, he says to stop, drop, and pray. Stop, drop, and pray. Our world, he says, overvalues 15 minutes of fame and vastly undervalues a lifetime of faithfulness. Our world overvalues 15 minutes of fame and vastly undervalues a lifetime of, of faithfulness. Just as our greatest successes often come on the heels of our greatest failures, our greatest answers often come on the heels of our longest and most boring prayers. And he says the physical prayer postures are like the tone of voice you use when you're communicating. If the words that we're praying are what we say, then our physical posture is how we are saying it. In fact, Scripture describes a variety of prayer postures. Scripture describes kneeling, and sometimes I'll kneel when I'm praying. You might see me kneeling here when I'm praying from time to time. Scripture describes falling prostrate on your face. Scripture describes the laying on of hands and the anointing of the head with oil, and we see that in the New Testament. The Quakers had a unique prayer posture. They would, they would start their, their prayer with their hands facing down. They'd, they would put their hands out facing down, symbolizing the things that they needed to let go of, like confessing sin, rebuking fears, and relinquishing control of their lives. And then they would turn their hands over so they're face up, symbolizing receptivity, that they're ready to receive from God his joy, his peace, his grace, and the fruits and gifts of the Spirit that God wants to give. And that would be a good way for you to practice praying, that, that you're going to pray for, for a few moments with your hands out, confessing your sins, releasing and relinquishing control, and, and, and rebuking the fears and, and the things in your life that, that aren't of Christ, and then turning your hands over and and being ready to receive from God his joy, his peace, his grace, and the fruits and gifts of the Spirit. There's nothing magical about any of these postures. There's, there's nothing that, you know, like if you pray on your knees in, in, in an exact angle, in a, you know, exact position, then, then God will answer your prayers. That's not how it works. There's, you know, if you, pray, if you pray with your hands outstretched like Moses when he had his hands out, there's nothing, there's nothing magical about these. But there is something biblical. Something biblical about praying in this way. And, and it's something about joining with other Christians who have prayed in these ways and these postures for thousands of years. So what posture are you using when you pray? Now, when we're talking about prayer, next week we're going to talk about some more of these forms of prayer. But um, one of the things that's important is that we're going to see from the life of Daniel is fasting. And nobody wants to talk about fasting. You guys should actually, as a church, you should feel, should feel blessed because we have yet to do an all-church fast. And I know, like City Harvest down the road, they do a fast every year at, at the beginning of January. And a lot of churches will do a fast at the beginning of the year. They'll even do a Daniel fast at the beginning of the year. And they'll pray and they'll, for 21 days, give up a lot of things. But fasting is an important part of a, of a good prayer life. I, I, I like to fast a few times a year for a few days. I don't do it as much as I should or as much as I want to. 
But I like to about twice a year take, take three days and fast. Sometimes I just do it when I'm going about ordinary life and I'll just be fasting as I'm, as I'm working and doing things around, around the office. And other times, if I can, I like to get away. But for the most part, I'll, I'll do a fast for, for a couple of days twice a year. The most recent fast I did was this last January, just a couple months ago. Someone in the church was gracious enough to give us some funds so I could get away to pray and listen to God and, and, and let him speak and, and kind of give us clarity for vision and what he wants to do this, this coming year. One day, as I was walking on the beach, the only sunny part of the time that I was there was the, the afternoon of the second day that I was there. I'd been fasting for about a day and a half. I was out on the beach walking and praying and asking God, what did he want our church to focus on this year? What is it that you want us to do in 2021? And literally, I'm not making this up, literally as soon as I prayed that prayer while I was out on the beach during this time of fasting, I got a text from my wife Becky saying that we should think about the circle maker and doing draw the circle. And that was the most clear direction I got from God during that time. So we're praying. Because sometimes we, we get clear direction, and there have been seasons like that in our church where, where I've had a very clear direction from God what he wanted us to do. And then there are other times where I think what God wants most from us is to want him most. And I feel like that is a season that we are in as a church, that we're in a season right now where what God wants most from us is to want him most. And a great way to do that is through prayer, being dedicated to pray. Fasting is, is, a, is a way of drawing a circle. It's a way of intensely circling an issue with prayer and, and being really focused in it. Fasting is very biblical, and we don't like to talk about fasting. There, there aren't any explicit commands in the New Testament to fast, but we know that Jesus fasted while he was on earth, and Jesus had the presence of the Holy Spirit on him and on his ministry, and he had communion with the Father. So we know that there's nothing unbiblical about fasting, because if we have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit allows us to commune with the Father, and Jesus had the same thing, and he fasted, then fasting is good for us to do as well. An empty stomach may be the most powerful prayer posture in Scripture. Our stomach, throughout Scripture, is synonymous with desire. You, you will see, especially in the Old Testament, your stomach being, being used as a synonym for desire. And in fact, the words can be translated the same. It can be hunger, like you're hungry for something, physically hungry for food, or it can be hunger for wanting something in life. So denying ourselves food is a great way to synchronize our bodies and souls in seeking God first. Remember, we're supposed to love God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and all of our strength. And a lot of scholars put our physical bodies in that category of strength. We're supposed to seek God with our entire being, love him with our entire being. In fact, Jesus himself, you might remember, said that only some miracles can happen by fasting and prayer. Right? Remember, there were, there were the demons that the, the disciples could not cast out. And then Jesus came up and he cast it out. And his response on why they were able to do it when the disciples weren't, Jesus said, some can only come out by fasting and prayer. When you have something big in your life that you need to circle fast. When you need a breakthrough, fast. 
Hunger has a way of breaking down the calluses of our hearts and making us more receptive to God's teaching and communicating to us. It's not fun. I really don't like it at all. I don't know about you. I don't enjoy fasting. Rather than doing the, the Daniel fast, I'd be happy to do a Taco Bell fast if there's such a thing. I love Taco Bell, but I can't eat it. Great tragedy of life makes me sick. But there are certainly times when it's worth being hungry in order to experience God on a deeper level. If physical hunger got you closer to God spiritually, wouldn't it be worth it? If being hungry for a few days or maybe even just a few hours a day for a while and starting there, if you haven't fasted for, for 24 hours, you may not want to start there, maybe fast a meal. And what's important is that while you're fasting, you take the time that you would have spent eating and spend that time praying. It's, it's a way to exchange time and, and take time that you would have spent doing something else and, and devote that time to God. But, but it's, it's a practice that I'd like to see us develop a little bit more, and we'll probably be doing one and encouraging people to do it a little bit more often. Rachel asked the question, do you think confession of sin and repentance is necessary first before prayer? That's a good question. Do you think repentance of sin is necessary first before prayer? I think probably one of the best examples would be to look at the Lord's Prayer and answer that question. Jesus taught us to pray when he taught us to pray. He said, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours. This is added later. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, I don't think there's... I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing it first, but according to Jesus' prayer, it doesn't seem to have to be at the very beginning. Um, he put it in the middle. And he also equated forgiving our sins with how we forgive others of their sins against us, so we need to pay attention to that too. Maybe we don't just need to repent of sins. We also need to repent of not forgiving people for their sins against us. But... I don't know, I'd have to think about that and do some research to answer that question a little, more, a, little, a little better. And Jim's not here to answer it for us, so. About six years ago, you've, some of you have heard me talk about this several times. I'm going to talk about it again. Thinking about doing it again, if anyone's interested in doing a climb up Mount St. Helens, talk to me after the service. I'm thinking about doing it uh, maybe this summer, I don't know. Uh, my brother's coming out to do it this summer, I think. And so... Um, there may be an opportunity there. I don't know, the tickets or uh, the passes sold out pretty quick last year, but it might be fun to, to get a group of people together and work towards climbing Mount St. Helens. But we did this, I think it was about six years ago, and I think, I want to say 2014. It was either 2014 or 2015. I don't know if you know this, but I'm not a small guy. Even when I've been in the best shape of my life, I'm not a small guy. My, my fr- I have a big frame, I have great big bones, you know, those, those uh, stinking BMI tests. Like, I, th- I think if I, was, if I had absolutely nothing except bones in my, on, my, on my skeleton, I think they'd still say I'm too, that I'm in the obese category. I think I could lose like 70 pounds and still be obese. Um, 
But I'm not a small guy, right? I think even when I was in the best shape in, of my life in high school, I was still 210 pounds um, in high school when I was playing football and, you know, working out five days a week and doing all of that. But I also have asthma, and asthma can make physical exertion, especially long periods of physical, physical exertion, pretty challenging. I knew it was going to be a challenge, but I knew that I was going to accomplish it. It's one of the things that I, I talk about, how you just make a decision, and you're going to do it, and you don't go back on that decision. I made a decision when, we, when I started training. I was going to climb the mountain. I was going to complete the task. I was not going to make it partway up and then turn around. I was going to make it to the top and come all the way back. So I trained for months. And I had a backpack, my, my, I think it was either mine or my wife's old backpack from college. And I put 30 to 40 pounds of weights in it. And I wore that backpack and I would go hiking up the hills around our house. And sometimes I'd go up and back and up and back about seven miles as high up as, in elevation as I could get. And then there were times that I went out to like the, to, I think it's called Table Rock and Dog Mountain or something like that out in the gorge. And I'd, I'd do these. I did some research and, and discovered that that, that that trail out there has some gravel on it that's kind of like climbing up Mount St. Helens. So I'd do that as far as I I could and I'd walk up and, and get as high as I could and come back down. Well, the night before I went on that hike, I couldn't sleep. So I got out of bed, drove two hours to meet my family. We signed in, read all the warnings about, you know, how you're not supposed to do this because you're taking your life in your own hands and so on and so forth. But it's not as dangerous as jumping out of a plane, so we did it. But as we started the hike, we were met with some people who were coming down the mountain. You know, we had barely an hour into our hike, and there were some people already coming down the mountain, which, which kind of gave us a false sense of time. It gave us the wrong impression, like, oh, this isn't going to be so bad. <laughs> like, there's some people that have already been up and come down, you know. What you don't know is that they, they camped out there, and they, they, they started at like 3 o'clock in the morning so that they could be up at the top of the mountain when the sun rose or something like some ridiculous notion. I might as well have done that, though, because I was awake. Anyway, gave me the wrong impression first couple of miles weren't so bad. They're about like any hike that you might do out the gorge. It's quite a bit of elevation gain, but still it's not so bad. There's a lot of views. You can see Mount Adams off to the east. It's beautiful greenery all around you. But as you start to get towards the end of that trail, you come to the boulder fields. And I don't know if you remember me talking about the boulder fields or if you've climbed them, but there are actual boulders that were blown out of the mountain during the eruption. And, you know, they're easily the size of this table. Some of them are taller. You have to kind of crawl. Like, I wasn't anticipating doing this much rock climbing. And it's not like rock climbing, like, you know, sheer face rock climbing. I'll never do that. But, but I wasn't anticipating doing that much climbing. You have to use a lot of your upper body and a lot of muscles that you aren't used to, to using. I didn't train for that at all. But I kept going. And I think it's about a mile, maybe a little bit less than that, of, of climbing over the boulders. And then once you get through the boulders, they call it the pummy. It's short for pumice. So you get out of the boulders, and up at the top of the mountain, the last 1,000 feet or so of elevation that you have to climb is pumice. It's just all gravel, it's, and it's, a, it's about like walking on marbles. You, you take a step forward, and, and you slide back about 70% of the step that you take. And then you take another step forward, and you slide back on the pumice as you're, as you're trying to get up. So, so you're taking about three times as many steps to get up for this last 1,000 feet, the, you know, the last thousand feet of the mountain, you have to work three times as hard to get to the top. And I ran out of water. 
Luckily, I was with family, and I had some people who shared water. I had as much water as I could fit in the backpack, but I still ran out, ran out of water on the way up. We made it to the top. I'll never forget sitting on the top of that mountain. My Aunt Jeanette, who's a bit of a character, um, brought fried chicken from Safeway, and she brought spicy fried chicken from Safeway, and I, she shared some of it with me, so we ate spicy fried chicken on top of Mount St. Helens. That was a mistake. It didn't come back up, but I tasted it all the rest of the day, wanting to come back up. And I was out of water, and no one else had water. Pretty much everyone else had used their water once we were on our way back down. Climb back down takes just as long as the climb up. I was the last one. I wasn't the last one to leave going down, but I was, you know, everyone else in the family in much better shape than I am and, and a lot smaller people than me for the most part. There's my, my cousin Donald who's taller than me, but he's skinnier than I am. So they all, they, they all went ahead of me and they go back and, and they're all having a barbecue by the time I get back to the, to, to the thing. And my cousin Donald, who's taller than I am but skinnier than I am, he actually finished and came back and walked with me on the way down. And I really appreciated that from him. Made sure he said, we've got to make sure everyone gets off the mountain. No one's, no one's not getting off the mountain. So he just walked with me and some other family members who also followed me. I think some of them appreciated my pace because they wanted to, you know, they wanted to go fast and prove that they were in shape, but they appreciated having somebody like me to go slow with and take it easy. I was the last one to finish, but I made it. Well, the reason I was able to finish was simple. I didn't quit. It's not complicated. It was difficult. It was hard work, but like I said, I had decided in advance that I wasn't going to quit. Quitting wasn't an option. I was going to finish. Even if it took me 14 hours to finish, I was going to finish. It took me 12 hours and 36 minutes. But I finished. I think a lot of times prayer is a lot like climbing a mountain. A lot of times the most difficult things in our lives are, are the things that, that, that are going to require the most of us. They're things that seem impossible. Things that, that seem like there's no way this could ever happen. That, that it's just impossible for this situation to be resolved or for God to answer this prayer or for God to, to, to change me or to change someone else. But if you keep climbing or if you keep circling you eventually make it to the top. If you keep climbing, you eventually make it to the top, even when some of those steps are like taking one step forward and two steps back. If you keep climbing, if you keep circling, you make it up the top, up to the top. And every circle we make, every prayer we make is like, is like another step up the mountain. And every time we keep praying circles around our biggest problems, our biggest fears, our biggest situations, our biggest dreams, or whatever it is, our biggest relationships in our lives, as we keep praying circles around them, every prayer is like taking another step up the mountain. Sometimes we pray and it's like taking two steps backward. But the harder the climb, the more amazing it'll be when you reach the summit. The harder it is to pray the more rewarding it will be when that prayer is answered. Great revelation from God requires great dedication to God. 
If we want God to to really reveal himself to us, to show us who he is, to to, to show us how to to navigate this world, to show us how to understand this this complicated society and, and, and world that we live in, we need a great dedication to God to give us the revelation to understand that. We need to stop praying ASAP prayers, God, as soon as you possibly can. I need you to do this thing, and we need to start praying ALAT prayers as long as it takes. We're going to pray as long as it takes to see God come through. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of Christ who not only taught us to fast and pray to experience some of your interaction and involvement in our lives, but as he faced the greatest challenge any human being has ever faced, not just dying on the cross, but carrying the weight of the sins of all humanity to that cross, carrying on himself the burden of the rebellion of all mankind from the beginning till the end of human history. Thank you, Father, that that as he climbed that mountain and as, as he was going through the challenge of dying in our place, as he was going through the struggle of, of, of dying for our sins, that he didn't stop one step short. Thank you, Father, that he went all the way to the cross, that he submitted himself and surrendered himself to your call and purpose for his life, and that the result of his faithfulness is the salvation that we currently experience. The result of his faithfulness is the relationship that we currently have because we can now enter through a new and living way through his flesh on that cross that was opened up to us through Jesus. Father, for those challenges and struggles that we're facing in our lives that seem insurmountable, those challenges that seem that they're impossible for us at the moment, we know that nothing is impossible with you And I pray, Father, that you would help us to have the endurance and the perseverance to keep on praying and to to have a long view of these prayers, that that we would not quit when our prayer is not answered today or this week or this month, but that we would continue to pray circles around these things, that we'd approach it from every angle, looking at the situation, that we'd use every prayer posture that we possibly can, and that as a result of praying for these things, as we're dealing with them and struggling with them, we would become more like you, and that you would use the challenges of these situations to refine us and to shape us into the image of Christ. And that if some of these prayers are never answered in the way that we want them, that we may rejoice in the work that you've done in our heart and our soul in transforming us into the image of Christ. I pray, Father, that we would live lives where we make much of you, not of ourselves, but that we exalt you to the highest place, and that we would know that as we walk this journey, we're never alone. In Jesus' name, amen.